0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website www.thecritic.co.uk to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, the author of Military Strategy, A Global History, Professor Jeremy Black, Talks to the critics, Deputy Editor Graham Stewart, about the strategic options for American defense policy in the aftermath of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Professor Jeremy Black, following the uh, departure from Kabul, President Biden announced that uh, the United States was no longer in the business of uh, remaking other countries. This has been interpreted as the end of the United States' role as the world policeman. Firstly, is that a correct interpretation? And secondly, for how long, historically speaking, has America been the world's policeman?
1: Um, Well, America hasn't been the world's policeman for very long. I suppose one could say that in the interwar years, it took that role in its sphere of influence in places like Haiti and Dominican Republic and Nicaragua. Um, But it's only really in recent years that it has taken this role. And has done so um, in part as a result of trying uh, to contain what was presented as opponents during the war, so-called war on terror. I, I think the I think there are several problems with the rush to um, comment, which is seen at the present moment. First of all, there is, as is always the case the problem of taking the views of a particular president and saying this represents American policy. I mean, obviously, you can't separate American policy from the policy of an individual administration. Equally, an individual administration is only in for four or eight years. So there's that issue. But secondly, I think that amidst all the Uh, horror, so-called, that has been, people have rushed to express, is a rational response by the United States. You may recall that in the 1990s, 2000s, there were people who were talking about the hubris of being a so-called unipower, uh, and really what one's seeing now is a more realistic response to a complex situation. Um, The fundamentals of the world have not changed geopolitically from where they were three months ago. The United States has best to address how to respond to the rise of China. Um, There are secondary regional issues, um, I would have thought most specifically around Iran and North Korea. And then there are tangential issues and i no more think that the united states has failed as a great power because it has pulled out of afghanistan than it has failed as a great power because it didn't topple president maduro of venezuela which you might argue was a more significant um um, issue in the American in near america but obviously and as you know we discussed in our last issue how Uh, Many British commentators in particular adopted a hysterical response, um, largely because what President Biden's, I think, fairly sensible response to the exigencies of American national interests have done is drawn attention to some of the follies and flaws of those in Britain who've assumed that America would take its policies in different directions You know, um, people are entitled to their mistakes, but those are mistaken views. Uh, Separately, of course, there is the anti-Biden narrative. Now, you may recall when we discussed uh, the American presidential election, uh, I suggested that there were serious flaws with both the candidates, with both uh, President Biden and with then President Trump. And I remain of that view. I do not think President Biden is is mentally or physically up to the job. But that does not mean that a drawing in of America's uh, commitments was necessarily foolish. And in fact, I would take the opposite view.
0: Mm. Well, there is, if you like, a, a realist view which uh, you've just articulated, which is. Uh, I am actually, a realist
1: in international relations.
0: Yes. <laughs> which is that. Um, a realist
1: and neo realist and neo neo realist and back to being a realist, yes.
0: <laughs> The view that uh, nation building in Afghanistan was uh, an indulgence and a diversion uh, away from where America's real strategic interests are. But there is an alternative view which is based uh, partly on psychology, and it's one of prestige, and that is the, the very obvious failure in Afghanistan. Uh, is a dent to American prestige. I agree with, with you. I agree with meaning you. It can't build the alliances. I, I agree with you, but changed.
1: at some stage, you have to make a choice. I mean, I was thinking back to something virtually none of the listeners will have heard of, which is the Penjdar crisis in 1885, when Britain nearly went to war with Russia over the northern boundary of, guess where, Afghanistan. And the British prepared war, they were going to attack the Russians in the Far East, Vladivostok, they were going to fight them in the Baltic, etc, etc. And then somebody paused and thought sensibly, actually, is this sensible? And as we discussed last issue, and obviously these are sequential, I do hope people listen to them in sequence, but uh, any author will know that this is not what happens. The United States has more significant issues. I itemized um, the problems posed by North Korea developing, um, you know, uh, nuclear weaponry capability. We could add Iran in the same light. Uh, there are obviously the problems posed by China. And to be blunt, anybody who in that context says the Americans should be focusing on Afghanistan are at best fools or at worst patsies for Iran and. China Now, I don't think uh, Mr. Tugendhat and such like like to see themselves as patsies for Iran, but that's what they're doing, because the more that Iran, the more that America is committed to Afghanistan, the less it is able to take an active or indeed any role elsewhere.
0: Mm. Well, let's uh, let's start uh, a little to the west of Afghanistan um, in Iran. What do you see is the future for uh, American strategy in regard to Iran?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I think for the United States, you know, we've discussed strategy. I think strategy is about prioritization. I think the key power in 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 priority terms for the United States is China. I think everything else is secondary, and I think that the amount of time or resource one has to devote to other powers and other issues depends in part on what you are doing vis-a-vis the challenge from China. I mean, bluntly, if China is threatening to invade Taiwan, then that is more, or North Korea to drop an atom bomb on um, Guam, that is more consequential than if Iran is throwing its weight around in the Gulf. And I think any strategist would tell you so. And, you know, we've got to go back here. Um, In 1956, the Americans made a decision that they were not going to intervene in Hungary. This was part of a more general Eisenhower policy of no rollback, which was the key element. And that, of course, differentiated himself from the greater Hawks. And in a sense, that is a sensible response. You ca- unless you want to take out everybody that's being a nuisance. And you know, the United States, if it wished to tomorrow, could demolish Iran with atomic weaponry. You know, let's be clear about that. But unless you wish to do that, you have to respond to realities on the ground. Now, Iran is a very unattractive regime. It is suppressed uh, democratic leanings there, it's an active sponsor of terror. Um, and yet, somehow, We have reconciled ourselves to that, and that is because we reconcile ourselves to exigencies on the ground. Here goes the clock. Um, The idea that we should do something different in Afghanistan is bizarre the Iranians are much more challenging. So I would ask those rather foolish Members of Parliament in Britain who have been laying claim to taking all sorts of responses vis-a-vis Afghanistan, well, why the hell haven't they been saying something about Iran?
0: Mm -hmm. And the
1: answer is they have a geography of prudence and other people have a geography of prudence. And what happens is people emotionalize uh, there or moralize their own choices and make other people's choices allegedly appeasement. Well, that's just childish. That is just stupid. That is rhetoric. It might make for a good speech in the House of Commons. It might, for all I know, help to um, take one into being leader of the Conservative Party or Prime Minister, or for that matter, <laughs> the same for Labour. But it does not mean it is necessarily a sound analysis of the situation.
0: Well, on on the hill in Washington, do you sense there is now a bit of a consensus between Republicans and Democrats uh, that America needs to focus on its key strategic uh, um, areas of potential confrontation? Or uh, and, and the debate is obviously about you know, the nature of, of how that is done, but but not the reality of it. Um, or do you actually think this, this apparent bipartisanship between the, the Trump approach and the Biden approach to not fighting uh, eternal wars is something that, that could fray pretty quickly if circumstances uh, dictated?
1: Well, I certainly think you're right in the latter case. I mean, if obviously there is a major terrorist atrocity and that terrorist atrocity is blamed on um, the Biden administration fairly or unfairly, and then that makes the situation very difficult. But in essence, I think you're correct that, uh, as we discussed last time, and the, the Fonza d'Argo here, the, the start, was very much um, uh, President Obama's uh, pivot, again, towards relations with China. America has, over the last decade, been disengaging from its commitment in southwest um, asia and i suspect that that will continue um that doesn't mean that there won't be an american military presence the key presence the key presence of course is um american warships based in bahrain um, and that is important far more useful uh, in requiring less protection incidentally than american troops based in afghanistan Um, But I think it's fair to say that there is an urgency to anxieties about China and North Korea that surpass every other issue. Now, you know, I mean, there is a, you you were critical of my being a realist, that's absolutely fine. I mean, realists are used to people saying that they are lacking in, you know, the sentiment and cant of the modern age. Um, But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't help to run foreign policy on sentiment and can if what you have got to do is think about how best to deter China.
0: Yes, oh, there, there was no implied criticism of calling you a realist. I mean, better to call you a realist than, than uh, someone who's not a realist. Uh, but... That would
1: be my view. That would be my. View. But uh, can I just say, I mean, that's kind of you to say so. And first of all, for the benefit of listeners, and uh, what uh, Graham and myself are referring to, are uh, different interpretations based in international relations, political science theory between realists and idealists, much of which is fairly factious, but it captures um, uh, contrasting interpretations of how international relations ought or does work. And um, with the classic, obviously, conceit of academics, it goes through neo-realism, neo-idealism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the root issue here, as far as Britain is concerned, is that much British foreign policy and much of the British public debate, and not just on international relations, but you might also say on other matters, relates to sentiment, relates to how people would wish the world to be, rather than a response to how it is. This is very, very flawed, in my view, as an analysis of the world. It's flawed as an analysis and in international relations, and it's flawed as a domestic matter. Now, the interesting point is here that and you know, I've written on this matter, people can look back in my literature traditionally. Uh, idealist perspectives have been more strongly pronounced on the left, though there have been idealists on the right. One could think of Edmund Burke's response to the French Revolution, which is a classic idealist statement of counter-revolutionary intent and analysis. Um, what is odd, I think, about the present situation is that in part in order to beat their breasts and say they want to you know sort of resonate or but in part I suspect because many conservatives have become confused. Um, the idea of an, an assessment of national interest and basing international relations, foreign policy and domestic policy on an assessment of national interest, which is the classic notion of realist politics and the classic definition from the realist perspective of conservatism has been thrown away by many conservatives. And many conservatives, albeit often in specifics, um, having you know different uh, policy formulations to the left nevertheless in their attitudes are very similar to left-wingers in the sense that they focus on what they would like the world to be rather than what it is now I'm afraid I'm an old-fashioned conservative I'm a true blue I think that what you get in a lot of modern conservatism is just the left under a different guise and it's sad that one sees that uh, but on the other hand it shouldn't surprise one and you know I've ref- i refer, as we've discussed in the past, to my book on the Tory tradition in foreign policy, in which I do draw attention to these tensions within Conservative viewpoints.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, the the British um, Defence Spending Review and Strategic Review pinpointed Russia and China as Britain's two uh, great uh, competitors and rivals. Is that Are those the same two for the United States? China clearly is. But uh, um, how seriously does Washington take Russia as a threat and how seriously should it take it?
1: Well, that again is an excellent question. I mean, the prime target is China. Um, I think it's fair to say that there is concern in Washington about President Putin. But President Putin's resource base is not strong and, of course, is getting weaker as Um, oil becomes less important as as an asset. Um, I mean, President Putin has shown that he can, and shown that he can and will intervene um, as he has done in Syria, but that is not, and that was obviously inconvenient for the United States and for the European powers, but it hasn't actually fundamentally upset um, the United States. And I think from the American point of view, China is very much more an issue and that this is a disjuncture uh, with the Europeans. I would say that after China and North Korea, uh, if anything, Iran is more important as a threat to the United States than Russia is.
0: Well, uh, let's let's deal with the Asia-Pacific theater and the United States strategy. Uh, there's North Korea, but there's also an assessment of China. Uh, do you believe Washington sees China as an imperial power which will uh, is and will exert its authority across a, a wide and diffuse sphere of influence? Or does it regard China's direct interests as limited to the Straits of Taiwan and occupying strategic islands in the South China Sea, but but not necessarily beyond that?
1: No, I think there is concern that it's developed the former rather than the latter. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't um, particular areas of greater interest to China. one of them being, for example, an absence of American intervention in North Korea. You know that, so that the Chinese conceptualize their foreign policy in terms of negatives as well as positives, if you wish to use that terminology. And the Chinese do not see themselves, to the extent that we do, as a an expansionist power. I'm not asking you to agree or disagree. I'm just simply observing that. But I think it's fair to say that. China has become much more ambitious in recent years. It's conceptualizing itself as a global model that ought to be followed more widely. And just as we and the rest of the world have had to be used over the last 30 years to, um, shall we say, interventionism by Western powers. So we at least have to consider and the Chinese have to consider whether they are going to do the same. And we have to consider how we would respond. So let us say there was a um, here. We're looking ahead 20 years. We're not looking ahead this instance. But let us say there was a terrible breakdown in Mindanao and the uh, the southern southern large island of the Philippines and Islamic separatists stroke, whatever you might mean, but in this context by terrorists, um, are successful. As you know, there's been a separatist struggle there in, uh, for a number of years, well, for a long time. Um, how would we respond if the Chinese announced they were intervening? You know, there are so there are. It's not just issues that we can see at the present moment. It's issues that might occur. It's issues that might occur in a broader, a broader geopolitical span. On the other hand. I think if you were looking realistically at the last 30 years, and I'm assuming though here we may be wrong to take a realist perspective, but let us assume the Chinese are realists, the thing that they would learn from the United States and in a lesser role, Britain's intervention in the last 30 years, is that on the whole, interventions have not led to the outcomes that were anticipated in the short, medium or long term. So why that would one encourage one, let us say you're China and you've lent hundreds of millions to um, an African state, as well as providing a large number of advisors and things go pear-shaped, they murder a lot of your advisors, They, you know, write off the debt. I would have thought a Chinese, uh, you know, government at the present moment might be realistic enough to say, well, is this really sensible, us intervening? I don't know. Um, What I can guarantee is that there would be plenty of idiots in London and Washington to say if China intervened, then we must intervene against them um so you know there is there are problems here and uh, not just what the other side does is how one responds now my own view is that it's very important to support democracy in the East Asian states and I think there are clear western interests in Japan South Korea and Taiwan remaining independent and supporting the western system and there are clear interests in us acting therefore to help them and to help deter attacks or pressure upon them. I do not feel the same about um, some other areas where China might choose to intervene, because I'm not convinced that necessarily if China chooses to be idiots like we've been idiots, that we should regard that as a terrible failure.
0: Yes, so I mean, an example would be uh, a country- China
1: intervening uh, in Afghanistan? Let, let,
0: let, well, let, let, let's say a, a country in Africa, which has very strategic res- mineral resources, uh, which uh, which then defaults uh, on on its um, loans to China, China directly intervenes- you, you, Equatorial
1: you, Guinea, for example.
0: Yes, well, it, it, yes, um, you do Yes, you don't foresee it's likely
1: I don't think the Chinese are likely to do that. I think they're more likely to do, as we know, when Mugabe was overthrown, it was shortly after a visit by the head of the armed forces to Beijing, we know that. Um, and, you know, the assumption has to be that Beijing okayed the action by the armed forces. Well, you know, it all said and done, if Beijing backs one group of whatever you want to refer to them as, you know, undemocratic actors against another group of undemocratic actors, we have to be careful of seeing that as a fundamental overthrow of the world system.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, to return to the Asia Pacific sphere, um, you spoke a moment ago about reassuring um, America, reassuring Southeast Asian Allies. One way, of course, is uh, through um, defence, but another way is pulling them away from the magnet of uh, Chinese-backed, state-backed investment and the the financial system that um, um, the Belt and Road and other Chinese initiatives um, potentially has in drawing Southeast Asian countries into the, the the Chinese sphere of influence. Is there much that America can do beyond um, having aircraft carriers patrolling uh, in, in the Pacific to reassure these countries? Or do they really need to create an alternative financial pool uh, which um, ensures that, that these countries are, are within the American financial sphere of influence?
1: Well, um, the United States, like Australia, like New Zealand, have made major efforts in the Southwest Pacific to try and restrain China's appeal in places like Samoa, uh, Papua New Guinea, um, by not just hard power, but by soft power, including, you know, financial assistance and uh, given that many of the poorest countries in the world are in the pacific that will no doubt continue to be the case australia and new zealand play the largest role in the southwest pacific and america plays the largest role in micronesia Uh, france itself plays a significant role in polynesia because france is worried about you know chinese activity there um, which includes all sorts of things like um, uh, depredation by fishing boats, which are in effect kinds of auxiliary uh, fleets. Um, so I don't think it's just simply a matter, as you put it, of uh, sailing, you know, um, aircraft carriers around the place. Uh, there are other aspects of aid. Um, I seem to remember uh, reading very recently about the United States, New Zealand and Australia, for example, trying to encourage and finance to that end, um, the use of electricity and connectedness in Papua New Guinea. Um, They're obviously also trying to restrict separatist activities such as both in Bougainville in Papua New Guinea and in Vanuatu and in the Solomons. so i think the there are a range of activities i mean clearly from the united states' perspective um getting through some of the roadblocks in washington so in other words it would be good if uh, it was possible for the administration to um get its ambassadors out there if the opposition the republicans would you know would cease uh, in those particular areas to um, weaken the United States, I mean, if you think about it, it's not too different uh, from the opposition blocking military appointments, you know, it is not helpful. Um, but I don't think you could fairly say that the United States lacks um, like, lacks um, concern, the problem is what to do about it. Uh, You may recall me mentioning in one of the programmes that possibly historians in the future, insofar as they've got any sense, which we'll put a question mark against, may say that the principal weakness of the Trump administration was allowing North Korea to develop its nuclear armaments. Uh, You might also mention that under President Trump, there was a failure to deal with the Cuban-backed Venezuelan regime, a failure that may look more malign um, if that regime is able to destabilize its neighbors, particularly Colombia. So, the United States has a whole range of geopolitical commitments. I mean, you know, I keep trying to talk about that area because we need to think about what a post Castro Cuba uh, entails, what instability entails in Central America. Um, So, you know, I would say that if I was America, I would be very much more concerned about a range of activities and I would put Afghanistan low on the area. Now, obviously, the emotive scenes that you've mentioned, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, retreat from Kabul, seizure of American arms, blood you know, it, it, it wasn't good. It was, you know, a poorly implemented policy, but that does not actually mean that the policy itself uh, was wrong. And one has to be very wary about reading from implementation to policy error. And I haven't seen any very sensible um, assessments from other people explaining where America would get the necessary forces from if it had to intervene in, you know, what the Americans call the Caribbean, you know, that. So there are limits, you know, resources A, there are limits to the fungibility of resources, but B, insofar as resources are fungible, movable, there's limits to how many you've got. Mm, mm -hmm. Same for for Britain.
0: Yes, well, I mean, there's a clear historical analogy for America, isn't there, with the role of uh, Britain uh, in the past, which has overstretched uh, in the Mediterranean, in, in, in its own waters, in uh, in in Asia and so on. I mean, if you have America taking us continue to take a strong strategic interest in the Caribbean and in South America, but then there is potential confrontation uh, in uh, in Taiwan as well. Does America have the military resources to uh, be involved in, in, in these different seas, these different oceans, at, at the same time
1: now? Well, it depends upon the nature of the commitment and the um, extent to which commitments are simultaneous or sequential. Um, I think it's fair to say that if you are a major major power, let us call you an imperial power, but a major power, There are problems if you have to use your own armed forces all the time. So one of the great strengths of Britain as an imperial power in the 19th and early 20th century is that its land uh, basis outside Europe, to a significant extent, was based on Indian volunteers. Shock horror for Indian nationalists today. Um, One of the ways in which the United States failed, you might say, as a power, is that in intervening in Iraq, it needed to use its own troops preponderantly, rather than large amounts of troops from from states which it had extensively subsidized, such as Egypt, Pakistan, or or Turkey. So there are are issues there uh, to think about. Uh, I mean... (laughs) At the present moment, the only two global players are the United States and China. The United States has a greater reach and range. Uh, It has advantages from the extent to which it is American force close to China. It is not Chinese force close to the United States, and there is no equivalent in Cuba of the Chinese, for example, as there was for the Soviet Union, uh, that would be a real challenge for the Americans if the Chinese developed Cuba or somewhere else in the Caribbean or Caribbean, whatever you want to call it, uh, from a basing point of view. But even so, even allowing for that, The Americans still were able to prevail as a major power, even though they lost out in Cuba, and even though Cuba then intervened in a number of other places like Nicaragua. So, being a great power doesn't mean you win all the struggles. The real problem for the United States, in my view, and I would say the same thing for lesser powers like Britain or France, or for that matter, Russia, is not so much. Uh, how many weapons systems it has. You only get, I don't want you to be rude, but idiots focusing on that. Uh, The real problem is the relationship with two separate but related issues, which is one, one's capacity to make informed judgments about international relations, which bear a reference to national interests and the nature of one's alliance system. And secondly, the ability to deal with significant domestic problems that weaken one in international relations, either because they allow other powers to actually intervene in terms of your domestic affairs, um, as Russia did, for example, by uh, seeking to intervene in behalf of the SNP and the Scottish separatist Uh, referendum, or more generally and more acutely than that, by actually, as it were, weakening the state so that it is unable to devote the resource or attention to mature handling of policy assessments. Now, that can take a number of views. It could take An excessive expenditure on social welfare, for example, it could be um, a failure to have an adequate tax base, it could be a refusal to consider what is necessary in order to develop one's economy, there are different ways of looking at this, and some of those ways are more or less attractive to politics on the left or the right or whatever you mean by the center. But it is naive to imagine that one can consider international relations without looking at the domestic situation itself. And in Britain, um, I think, as in many other countries, uh, quantitative easing has allowed an enormous amount of naivety to flourish in international uh, relations or attitudes to international relations. And that is not helpful. Um, so I think, in a way, what one needs is to consider one's strategic commitments, one's foreign policy ambitions, with reference to what one can finance and support, rather than a naive, wishful nature of the world. And to that extent, I am calling for a conservative view on Foreign policy and defense. The sad truth now, though, is that many conservatives are as stupid and heedless of the national interest as the as those on the left.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, for America, in terms of the prioritizing that needs to take place, given that the resources aren't finite, uh, it, uh do you sense now that, that in Latin America the, the Americans really decided not to intervene? Those days of the 1970s of propping up. Uh, often quite authoritarian generals in South America because they were preferable to uh, communists or people on the far left, or or anarchy. Um, Do do you think with the end of that version of the Cold War, there is room for America to very much reduce its interest in South America? Well, that's
1: again a very fascinating question. You could say the Americans chose when they had a situation of mere monopolistic power to not deal with clear cut issues of um, authoritarian governments, Cuba, for example, Venezuela, um, let alone uh, other governments, Bolivia. when these governments were actively hostile. So you could say that the United States has already been adopting a situation of some restraint, and that is in part due to the lack of uh, exploitation of the situation by Russia and or China. Uh, Whether that changes in the future, I don't know. But for American policymakers, I do not think now there is the comparable concern about South America that there is about many other parts of the world.
0: Mm-hmm. And for, for Europe, short of a Russian invasion of the Baltic states, um, do, do you think America really is like to have any uh, further interest in, in, in Europe? I mean, presumably if there was another Kosovo Uh, America would not be involved in in the way that it was back in the days of uh, General Wes Clark. Um, But beyond um, defending the out of boundary of NATO, is that it really now in terms of the European theatre?
1: Well, I think the Americans have got a transactional relationship, uh, both within NATO and vis a vis the European Union and non EU members in Europe, which includes us, though not only us. Uh, Ukraine, for example, is one of them. Uh, so I think the Americans have a transactional relationship. I think that's entirely sensible. Um, the um, clearly, from the United States' perspective, there are there is a um, a wish that the Europeans would um play the key role in stabilizing if you like the eastern marshes of europe but also in north uh, north africa and uh, you may recall that although president obama secretly provided some key air support in the early stages of the libya intervention he was very keen that that should not be known about and essentially libya was played as a non european a non-american uh, uh, situation um and i as it is now i mean the principal external powers playing a role in Libya are Russia, Qatar, uh, Turkey, uh, but not the United, St- Egypt, but not the United States. And I'm not sure that that is in any way a foolish decision. Um, and so I think the Americans are sensible in trying to prioritize. I think that um, the, there is a degree of naivety elsewhere in, uh, in responding to that there is a failure to consider adequately um, the nature of the situation over the last few decades. Um, And there is the rush to emotionalism. Um, And also, of course, there is a reading into the present situation of people's political prejudices. So those people who are critical of America and Britain are most apt to be people who were opposed to Brexit and think that we, everything would have been perfect if we would have stayed in the European Union, which I'm afraid to say is, is inaccurate. Um, those people, I mean, in one respect that's rather funny is that a lot of people who were very critical of President Trump and assumed everything would be better with President Biden, some of them have had to realize that they are, um, yet again, that that was a stupid an, ass- an assessment, but you and I, I mean, you know, we're historians we know that um, alas the quality of public debate at any one moment is usually pretty, pretty flawed and what, what would be very funny is seeing many of these people in a year two years five years time explaining why um, they believe what is often the complete opposite of what they're arguing today
0: mm. well it, it, it's being suggested in terms of political prejudice it's being suggested that joe biden has uh, very little emotional feeling for uh, America's relationships with uh, with the UK. Um, is it your interpretation that actually realism will 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 uh, raise its head, and ultimately the British will still see, be seen to be America's best bet in terms of an ally? Or do you foresee the White House, if it was to name its top three allies, it would probably put Japan ahead of Britain now. And, and, and who else would, would be the key allies for, for America?
1: Oh, I think for America at the present moment, it would be Japan, Australia, and India. Um, the, um, and that shouldn't, in a sense, surprise us, because the United States is most concerned about the challenge from China. And also because it has to be said that, going back to what we've been talking about earlier, that the British are not focused on, um, you know, national revival and economic strengthening. And you can see the way the absolute emotionalism of the response to Covid. Um, You know, you have to ask yourself, would you really want to be allied to to a power that, that can behave like that? so i'm not sure that we should be terribly surprised at that i mean i would have thought if you were an american looking at europe it must be pretty desperate um the germans are the strongest economy they're unwilling to stand up to the russians they're unwilling to spend money on their uh defenses and their fiscal policy helps to destabilize southern europe the French are great for folly de grandeur, and when that uh, reaches the same audience as the Americans, everybody is happy to you know slap hands and all the rest of it. But the reality is the French are even more transactional than the Americans, and there is the fact, the degree to which President Macron is unpopular the British. Well, I mean, if you think about Britain and you were looking at it from the outside, nobody has the faintest idea whether Scotland is going to stay in. Um, Nobody, you know, Pete, the British have taken out unsustainable commitments in social welfare and health, etc, etc. So if I was an American policymaker, I would not be uh, putting the British First, I would say that the British and the French are the two powers to consider if one is looking at Europe, uh, because they will do or could do more than just simply restrain Russia or play a role against Russia, as without doubt, say Poland and Sweden are both capable of wanting to to do. and, you know, it may well be that, if, that the Americans identify particular goals and requirements of their own, which they see the British and French being particularly um, you know, sort of adept at or maybe willing to be pushed into doing, maybe in the European space, maybe in the Mediterranean. But um, I don't think the Americans see the British power projection, even if there is a carrier there in the Far East, as playing a crucial role as the as the um, as the uh, as the British do.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, finally, a, a reflection on that um, Anglo-American relationship. One of the motivations for Tony Blair at the time of nine eleven was to uh, keep Britain aligned with America. Uh, uh leading to british involvement in in iraq and in afghanistan are the british doing something similar now with a, a refocus towards china in the hope of being aligned with america's defense interests there and therefore british foreign policy continues to put the special relationship as the, as its number one priority regardless of whether that is in britain's interests or not
1: Well, we almost need an entire programme to discuss that. But remember, British concerns in the Far East relate also to relations with, say, Australia, Japan, and indeed India. They're not simply and solely to do with relations with the United States. But if what you are saying is, have the British thought through things adequately and are they aware of a degree to which they are less consequential than they would like to imagine, then I think that those are certainly things we could
0: discuss. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there, Professor Jeremy Black, uh, for taking us through uh, America's strategic options. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.